Chapter 13 of The Naval Officer, or Scenes in the Life and Adventures of Frank Mildmay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Tatro. The Naval Officer, or Scenes in the Life and Adventures of Frank Mildmay, by Captain Frederick Marriott. Where the remote Bermudas ride in the ocean's bosom. Andrew Marville. There is a particular kind of beauty among these islands, which we might really believe to be abandoned of fairies. They consist of clusters of rocks formed by zoophonite or coral worm. The number of islands is said to be equal to the days of the year. They are covered with short, green, squared, dark cedar trees and low white houses, which have a pretty and pleasing effect. The harbors are numerous, but shallow, and though they are, there are many channels in them, there is but one for large ships in the principal anchorage. Numerous cabins, whose roofs sparkle with spars and stantelics formed by the dripping waters, are found in every part of the island. They contain springs of delicious coolness to quench the thirst or to bathe in. The sailors have a notion that these islands float and that the crust which composes them is so thin as to be broken with little exertion. One man being confined in the guardhouse for having got drunk and misbehaved, stamped on the ground and roared to the guard, let me out or I'll dig your eyes out. I'll knock a hole in your bottom, scuttle your island, and send you all to hell together. Rocks and shoals abound in almost every direction, but chiefly on the north and west sides. They are, however, well known to the native pilots and serve as a safeguard from nightly surprise or invasion. Varieties of fish are found here, beautiful to the eye and delicious to the taste. Of these, the best is red grouper. When on a calm, clear day, you glide among these lovely islands in your boat, you seem to be sailing over a submarine flowered garden in which clumps of trees, shrubs, flowers, and gravel walks are planted in the wild. But regular confusion. My chief employment was afloat, and according to my usual habit, I found no amusement unless it was attended to with danger and this propensity found ample gratification in the whale fishery, the season for which was approaching. The ferocity of the fish in the southern latitudes appears to be increased, both from the heat of the climate and the care of their young, for which it would seem that the risk is taking them into greater than polar seas. From what I am able to learn of the natural history of the whale, she brings forth her young, seldom more than one time in the northern regions, after which, with the calf at her side, the mother seeks a more gentile climate to bring into maturity. They generally reach Bermuda about the middle of March, they, where they remain but, are, but a few weeks, after which they visit the West Indy Islands, then bear away to the south wind, and go around Cape Horn, returning to the Polar Seas.
by the Entuthan Islands and the Beijing Straits, which they reach in the following summer. When the young whale, having acquired size and strength in the southern latitudes, is, an, is enabled to contend with the, his enemies in the north, and here also the dam meets the male again. For my own experiences and inquiries I have been able to make, I am tolerably certain that this is the that this is a correct statement of the migration of these animals. The female annually making the tour of the two great American continents, attended by their young. The maternal socticide of the whale makes her a dangerous adversary, and many serious accidents occur in the season for catching whales. On one occasion, I have nearly paid with my life for the gratification of my curiosity. I went in a whaleboat rowed by colored men, natives of the island, who were very daring and expert in their pursuit. We saw a whale with her calf playing round the coral rocks. The attention which the dam showed to its young, the care she took to warn it of danger, was truly affecting. She led in away from the boats, swam round it, and sometimes she would embrace it with her fins and roll over it with her waves. We contrived to get the, the vantage ground by going towards seaward of her, and by the means drove her to shoal water among the rocks. At last we came so near the young one that the harpooner poised to weapon, knowing that the calf once struck the mother was our own, for she would never desert it. Aware of the danger and impeding fate of its inexperienced offspring, she swam rapidly towards it. In decreasing circles, evidence that the utmost uneasiness and anxiety, but the parental ad admonitions were unheeding, and it met in fate. The boat approached the side of the younger fish, and the harpooner buried his tremendous weapon deep in the ribs. The moment it felt the wound, the poor animal darted from us, taking out a hundred fathom of line. But a young fish is soon conquered when once well struck. Such was the case in this instance. It was no sooner checked with the line than it turned out to be back, and displaying its white belly on the surface of the water floated a lifeless corpse. The unhappy parent, with a distinct always, more powerful than reason, never quitted the body. We hauled it up the line and came close up to our quarry. Just as another boat had fixed us, the tail of the furious animal descended with irresistible force upon the very center of our boat, cutting it in two and the, killing the two of the men. The survivors took to swimming for their lives in all directions. The whale went into pursuit of the third boat, but was checked by the line from the one that had struck her. She towed them at the rate of 10 or even 11 miles an hour. They had, and had she had deep water, she would have taken down the boat or obliged them to cut away from her. The two boats were so much employed that they could not come to our assistance for some time and when we left to our own resources much longer than I thought agreed I was going to swim to the, cal to the calf whale but one of the men advised me not to do so 
saying that the shark would be as thick about him as the lawyers around Westminster Hall, and that I should certainly be snapped up if I went near. For my comfort, for my comfort he had added, These devils seldom touch a man if they can get anything else. This might be true, but I must confess, I was very glad to see one of, our, one of the boats came to our assistance. While the mother whale, encumbered with the heavy harpoon and line, and exhausted with the fountain of black blood which she drew up, drew near her calf and died by its side, eventually, in the last moments, more occupied than the preservation of her young than of herself. As soon as she turned back, I had reason to thank the mundane for his good advice. There were at least thirty or forty sharks assembled round the, car the carcass, and as we towed them in, they followed. When we had grounded them in the shallow water close to the beach, the blubber was cut off, after which the flesh was given to the black people, who assembled in the crowds and cut off with their knives large portions of meat. The sharks are liberally helped themselves with, with their teeth, but it was very remarkable that though the black men often came between them and the whale, they never attacked a man. This was a singular scene. The blacks with their white eyes and teeth, hooling, laughing, screaming, and mixing with numerous sharks and the most ferocious monsters of the deep, yet preserving a short of a truce during the presence of a third object. It reminded me, comparing great things with small of the portion of Poland. I found that there was neither honor nor profit for me in this diversion. So I no more went to whale fishing, but took my passage to Halifax in a schooner, one of those vessels built during the war, in imitation of the Virginia pilot boats, but like most of the imita imitations, about as much resembling the original as the cow is like a hare, and bearing exactly the same portion in point of velocity, and as if it had been determined that the vessels should be in every respect disregarded the British flag, the command of them was conferred on officers whose conduct would not induce captains to allow them to serve under them, and who were therefore very unwisely sent in small vessels when they became their own masters, and when many of them constantly drunk, such was the state of my command from the time I sailed until we reached Halifax. The example of lieutenant was followed by his mate, and the three midshipmen, the crew which consisted of twenty-five men, were kept sober by being confined to their allowance. I had a hopeful prospect. Fortunately, drinking was not among my vices. I could get fresh, as we call it, when in, when in good company and excited by with the mirth, but I never went to the length of being drunk. And as I advanced in years, pride and cunning made me still more guarded. I perceived the immense advantage with sobriety gave me an, over a drunkard. I failed not to profit by it, keeping constantly on deck almost night and day. I attended to the course of the vessel, and the sail was carried, never taking the trouble to consult the lieutenant, who was generally senseless in his cabin. We made the Sambro Lighthouse, which is at the entrance of the Halifax Harbor in the evening, and one of the midshipmen who was more than half drunk, declared himself well, well acquainted with the place and his offer to pilot the vessel 
in what was accepted. As I'd never been there before, I could be of no use. But being extremely doubtful of the skill of our pilot, I watched his proceeding with some anxiety.